Church, today I invite you to take your Bible, draw your sword, turn to Zechariah chapter 13. We find ourselves in the next to last of our series of sermons entitled Major League, a study of the minor prophets. I hope and pray that this study has been beneficial to you and a blessing to you. This morning I ask for you uh, to find yourself in Zechariah chapter 13. I want to read verses 1 to 9 in your hearing. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Zechariah chapter 13, I'll begin at verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they'll be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I'll remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, you must die because you've told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on the prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I'll refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. There are about 31 men in the Bible named Zechariah. There's Zechariah the prophet, Zechariah the priest, Zechariah the king. There's Zechariah who's the father of John the Baptist. Yet our Zechariah is the Old Testament prophet. He was born in Babylon. He returned to the city of Jerusalem in the effort to rebuild the temple in the sacred city alongside men like Haggai. The authorization for the Jews to return from Babylonian captivity was made possible by the Persian king, a man by the name of Cyrus. And this reconstruction project of the sacred temple was a multi-generational endeavor. There were men like Haggai. He was a senior citizen. There were also men like Zechariah. He was the age of a millennial. And so when you see the temple being rebuilt, after the Babylonian captivity, there are old men and young men, old women and young women. They are all there shoulder to shoulder in the effort to encourage one another in rebuilding the temple, not to lose heart, not to be fearful, but to keep on with the good work. This 14-chapter book of Zechariah is quoted some 41 times in the New Testament, making it the most quoted of the minor prophets. As you read through the prophecy of Zechariah, you'll discover it contains about eight visions. So in some places, it reads an awful lot like Daniel or Revelation. 
When you come to the heart of the book, it's the heart of the message. The very middle verse of Zechariah is found in chapter 8, verse 8. And it's there where the Lord declares, I will bring my people back to Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their God. It is this promise at the heart of this prophecy that God's people will come back to Jerusalem. God will be with them once again. He will successfully bring them out of captivity. They will come there and they will worship him. For salvation is found in God and God alone. In the book of Zechariah, it opens with a call to repentance. Chapter 1, verse 3, return to me and I will return to you, declares the Lord of hosts. At the very end in Zechariah chapter 14, at a place like verse 9, it describes the glorious new kingdom that will be established by the Messiah. And it says that the Lord will be the king over all the earth. And on that day, there'll be one king. And on that day, there'll be one name. And he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And he will be the king of all kings. So you look throughout the book of Zechariah, and much of Zechariah is a prophetic statement about the coming of Christ. Zechariah accurately sees the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. Now, you and I live in between the advents, don't we? We live in between the first coming and the second coming. We look back some 2,000 years, and we recall Uh, How Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on a sinner's cross, was buried, raised on the third day, and ascended to the heavens. And here we are some 2,000 years later, and we're still awaiting the second coming of Christ. We know it's going to come one day in the future, and Jesus will return in like manner. For we, are, we read that as Jesus was ascended to the heavens, the angels declared to the disciples, why are you gawking into the sky? The same Jesus who was taken from you will return in like fashion. So we know that one day, soon and very soon, one day in the future, Jesus will literally and physically and bodily descend from the heavens and he will touch foot right there in Zion. And so we know that we live between the advents. Zechariah sees the necessity for the coming of the Messiah. And he sees the first coming and the second coming. In fact, many of the things that we hold so dear about the passion narrative of Christ were originally found in the book of Zechariah. Let me give you a few examples. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where we read the words, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming. He is righteous. With salvation, he is gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when you hear those words, you remember that those were the words spoken in the triumphal entry of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem for the very last time of his life. He came into the sacred city to the thunderous applause of the crowd. They shouted this statement alongside, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when the people declared, Behold, O daughter of Zion, your king is coming. That originally is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, Zechariah describes the selling of the Messiah as a slave. And he'll be sold for 30 pieces of silver, which is the precise amount of money that Judas received to betray our Lord. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, 
we read Zechariah's understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus. For he says, they will behold the one they have pierced. And they will grieve and mourn as the death of an only child, the firstborn son. In our passage, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, we read those familiar words, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Now Jesus quoted that in the upper room when he had the Passover meal with his disciples. He was telling them, on this night, all of you will fall away from me. For you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Not only did Zechariah see the first coming of Christ, but he also foretold of the second coming of Christ. I'll give you one example. In Zechariah chapter 14, verses 2 to 4, you find that God says that on that day, I will assemble all the nations to battle against Jerusalem, against Israel. And on that day, the feet of the Lord will stand on the Mount of Olives. And he will destroy all the pagan nations. In fact, when he steps foot, there'll be such an earthquake that the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. This is one of the reasons why we are always keeping our eye on Israel. Because we know that one day, King Jesus will descend. We know that he will step foot on the Mount of Olives. That same mountain that he lifted off of, he will return to that very same place. And so we're always looking to Israel because we know that our king will return. And Zechariah foretells all this. He, he sees into the future the necessity of the coming of Christ. So when you and I come to our passage of, of Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 to 9, I believe he is describing Jesus our Messiah. And in Jesus our Messiah, we have a true cleansing. And in Jesus, our Messiah, we have a true shepherd. And in Jesus, our Messiah, we have a true worship. I think those three points are clear from Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. First and foremost, in Jesus, our Messiah, we have a true cleansing. Look again at verse 1 of our passage. On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse from sin and all impurity. On that day. On that day is a favorite phrase for Zechariah. In fact, in our passage, it occurs three times. We read it in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4. On that day. In the last couple of chapters of Zechariah, you find on that day listed about 20 or more times. So for Zechariah, on that day is equivalent to the day of the Lord. If you've been with us very much over the last couple of months as we've walked through the minor prophets, nearly every single minor prophet has spoken extensively about the day of the Lord, the necessity for the Lord to come back. The day of the Lord will be a great day and a dreadful day. And we've talked about that the way you approach the day of the Lord is 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 bound and found in how you stand with the Lord of the day. That if you are with Christ, in Christ, it will be a great day. If you are outside of Christ and against Christ, it'll be a dreadful day. And so we have often said that the day of the Lord is synonymous with the second coming of Christ. That we know that day will come when we see Jesus descending from the heavens. 
But for Zechariah, that day was a smashing of the first coming and the second coming. I think that sometimes in Zechariah, when he refers to that day, he's referencing the first coming of Christ. I think there are other places when he says that day, he's referencing the second coming of Christ. Now think with me. In verse 1, when he speaks about the necessity for a fountain to be opened to cleanse from sin and impurity, which advent is he thinking of? Which advent is he describing? And I think you would have to agree with me that it's the first coming of Christ. That we know that when Jesus came the first time some 2,000 years ago and he died on a criminal's cross, that he died as our substitute. He died in our place. And the fountain of blood that was flowing from Christ, the pure, precious lamb of God, that as it was flowing from Christ, it was a fountain of new forgiveness to cleanse us from sin and impurity. So I think that he is referencing the fact that Jesus will come and he will die as our substitute and his blood will be a new fountain that will be open to cleanse us from all sin and all impurity. Now it was John Piper who asked a very good question of Zechariah here in chapter 13, verse 1. The question is, Zechariah, why do you see the need for a new fountain? Because if you read the Old Testament... There are plenty of bloody fountains all throughout the Old Testament. It, it, a simple reading of the Old Testament reveals that there was an elaborate sacrificial system for Israel. For we are told on numerous occasions, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so throughout the Old Testament, there were numerous animals, many times sheep, sometimes oxen or bull, but many times they were sheep, and those sheep were perfect and precious, about one year old, without spot, blemish, or defect, and they would be brought, and the priest would slit their throat, and their blood would flow as a sacrifice, and so that blood would be symbolic that it would cover over the sins of the people. And so if you look in the Old Testament covenant, if you look throughout the Old Testament, clearly there is a sacrificial system. There, there are a lot of fountains that are opened up and blood is shed for the forgiveness of sin. So Piper asked a great question. Why is there a need for another fountain? Why is there a need for this new fountain that Zechariah speaks about that will be opened to cleanse from sin and all impurity? And he concludes that the only reason you need a new fountain is because the old fountain is somehow insufficient. If you stop and think about this, you realize that there, there is a little bit of a disconnect. How can the blood of an animal cover my sin and your sin? I mean, how can the blood of an animal sufficiently, accurately, for all time and eternity, how can it cover our sin? It seems like a, a, seems like a, a kind of a, a simple sacrifice to be offered because when you compare it to the depth of the injury that our sin levels against the glory of God, it would appear that somehow it's not adequate enough. It's not sufficient enough. And that's why that in the sacrificial system, animals had to be sacrificed over and over and over, not the same one, but different ones, had to be sacrificed. And so they would come and people would bring them every day. 
every week, every month, sometimes every year. At most on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it was an annual event. So at most it would be good for a year. But then after that, more sacrifices would have to be made. So Piper asks a great question and he comes to the accurate, accurate answer. Why is a new fountain needed to be opened? And the answer has to be that somehow the current Old Testament system of sacrifice is insufficient. When Zechariah writes the words that on that day a fountain will be opened. I know he doesn't say the word new. I've been saying the word new fountain. But the reason I say the word new fountain is because the word opened is written in such a way that it communicates a continual cleansing. In the Old Testament system, the sacrifices were very temporal. They had a time stamp. They had a shelf life, right? They lasted, the sacrifices lasted a day, a week, a month, no more than a year. Yet Zechariah sees that the time is coming when God will come on that day and he will open a new fountain. And this fountain that will be opened will be open for continual cleansing. It won't need to be repeated. It won't need to be redone over and over again because it will provide continual cleansing for all sin and all impurity. So then the question becomes, how can this be made possible? And Zechariah sees a solution. Now it's way back in chapter 3. It's parts of verses 8 and 9. In Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he is Uh, looking at the high priest Joshua. We met Joshua last week in Haggai. He's the high priest uh, there following the days of the Babylonian captivity. It's the man named Joshua. He's the high priest. And he is clothed in filthy garments. And God is going to give him new garments. So in verses 8 and 9 of Zechariah chapter 3, you read these phrases where the Lord says, I will bring with me my servant The branch. At the end of verse 9, I will remove sin from the land in a single day. Stop and think about that. Zechariah sees a solution of how a new fountain can be given and be brought, for he says that the Lord himself will bring his servant. He calls his servant the branch. Now that sounds odd. I mean, we don't call anybody the branch. Who is he talking about? Well, the prophet Isaiah says that the branch is a term for the Messiah. That the Holy One of Israel will be the branch of God. That the branch will come. The branch, according to Zechariah, is the servant of the Lord. And this servant of the Lord will be brought by God himself. And that God, through the branch, through the servant, he will provide the removal of sin from the land in a single day. In a single day. Zechariah sees this new fountain will come. It'll be given through the branch of the Lord, the very servant of God. He will have to be slit and slain on our behalf as our substitute. He will be sacrificed and God will do this on a single day. Friends, Can he be talking about anything other than Good Friday? Can he be referencing anything other than the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday? 
We're on that faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to carry away our sins. And the way he did it was by dying as our substitute. He was slaughtered. He was slit. He was slain. And his pure, precious blood covers over all of our sins. Could Zechariah be talking about anybody other than Jesus? Could he be referencing anything other than Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Could he be talking about anything greater or anything other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? My answer is that's precisely who he's talking about. That's precisely what he's talking about. It is John who says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that everyone who confesses their sins will be cleansed by God and that he will remove our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Jesus, our Messiah, there is a new cleansing. The death of Jesus does not have to be repeated. The death of Jesus is once and for all. The death of Jesus never has to be sacrificed again and again and again. Jesus came on a rescue mission. He died in our place. He was sacrificed according to the will of God. He took our sin upon himself to give us his salvation. He did all of this in a single day. I would also add, he did it in a few faithful hours because about six hours on Friday, God squeezed an eternity's worth of condemnation upon Jesus. And Jesus declared, it is finished. To tell us die, payment for sin is paid in full. So in Jesus, our Messiah, there is true cleansing. Why is it that we don't slit the throats of sheep anymore? Why is it that we don't offer sacrifices again and again and again? Why is it? Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, died for us. His death is sufficient. It doesn't have to be repeated. In fact, God validated the sacrifice of Jesus for on the third day, he raised him from the dead. So in Jesus, our Savior, there is true cleansing. On that day, a new fountain will be opened for continual cleansing to all of God's people for the purpose of the removal of sin and all impurity. So in Jesus, our Messiah, there is true cleansing. Secondly, in Jesus, our Messiah, there is a true shepherd. That our Messiah is the real shepherd as compared to the false shepherds. In verses 2 to 7, which is the bulk of our passage, God describes some pretty epic, solid, amazing scenarios. He does this to show us the length that God will go to remove sin from his people. The two besetting sins of Israel throughout her history was idolatry and false prophecy. Those were the two great besetting sins. In fact, a devout Jew today will tell you that the reason our forefathers went into Babylonian captivity was so that God may rid us of all idols. For if you dig down, you won't find any idols in Israel after about the 6th century. And that is an accurate statement, that, that, that God sending his people to Babylon, when they came back, they did not bring with them the false idols and the false gods of the surrounding nations. But 
I would go one step further. That even though Jews and believing Gentiles, even though we don't uh, rub uh, uh, the belly of of Confucius, or or even though we don't have little shrines uh, in our homes, would any of us be so arrogant as to say we have no idols? Would any of us be so arrogant as to say our culture has no false prophets? You think to yourself, when when God says in verses 2 to 7, I will banish all the idols, I will remove all the false prophets, you think to yourself, now wait a minute, has that happened yet? He says, on that day, I'll do it. Did, did, Did that happen at Calvary's Hill? Well, the argument could be made that it did, but I would say that what Zechariah is seeing is the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, God will prove himself as the mighty warrior, as the righteous ruler, and he will banish all idols. And he will discard and destroy all false prophets. He describes a couple of scenarios. They kind of seem foreign to us. Uh, But I, I still contend that you and I battle idols and false prophets. You know, an idol is anything that can take your attention, your affection away from the Lord. So even a good thing can, you can make into a God thing. An idol can be anything. It can be your job, it can be your career, it can be money, it can be your marriage, it can be your children, it can be your grandchildren, it could be a dating relationship, um, it could be your image, it could be possessions, it could be power, it could be prestige, it could even be success. We can make just about anything into idols. An idol is anything that takes our attention, our affection away from the Lord. We still battle idols and false prophets. Oh boy, there are numerous false prophets speaking in our culture. And Paul told Timothy, it's exactly what's going to happen, even with religious people. For they, they will gather around them prophets, teachers, preachers, to speak to them what their itching ears want to hear. Now, you and I flip through the station on our television, and you and I go through the news feed, and and you and I listen to a whole lot of different kinds of sermons in America today, and there are a lot of quote-unquote prophets and preachers and teachers, and it sounds like all they're doing is just speaking what itching ears want to hear in the congregation. So we still live in a culture that battles idols and false prophets. The two besetting sins of Israel are the two besetting sins of all of God's people throughout human history. But God promises on that day, there's coming a day when God will banish all idols. He will remove all false prophets. He describes a scenario. He says in that day, there'll be such a desire for truth that when a false prophet speaks... Even his mama and his daddy will be the first one to stand up and say, you are a liar and you deserve to die. In fact, the Lord says, they'll be the ones, mom and dad, who stab him. Because their desire for truth will be so paramount. Their allegiance to the Lord will be so great that any time they hear from anybody, even if it's their own son, any time they hear from anyone who's a false prophet, they'll call it out and say, you are a liar. You are not speaking the truth of God. And they'll be the first to stab him. Now, let's be honest. Moms and dads, there are times when we say we want to kill our children. I get I mean, we, we say that, right? 
but I don't know that we really mean it. I don't know that we really believe it. I mean, we don't murder our children. We may want to pull out our hair. We may want to beat them to an inch of their death, but listen, we, we, don't, we don't kill them. Because as parents, we truly want nothing but the best for our children, don't we? It's a great place for an amen. I mean, we really want what's best for our children. We love our children. In fact, we would take a bullet for our sons and our daughters. But God describes a scenario where there's so much false teaching and so much false prophecy that, that when a false prophet stands up, there's an allegiance to God's truth that even the mom and the dad stand up and say, you're a liar. You are not speaking the truth of God. And God describes a scenario that where for the false prophet, they even get ashamed of what they say. They even get ashamed of it. They, they don't dress in the garments of a prophet. They don't wear the hairy cloak. And in fact, if anybody presses them and says, hey, aren't you a so-called prophet? No, 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 I'm not a prophet. I've been a farmer all my life. And then if somebody even presses them even further and they say, but wait a minute, what about the wounds on your body? It's visible, it's obvious to everybody. Now, that reference to wounds on the body of a false prophet was a sure sign of false worship. You remember when Elijah is on Mount Carmel and he's standing up against the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And when they are calling out for Baal, what do they do? They cut themselves, right? They make wounds on themselves in the hope that Baal will listen. When Elijah, the prophet of God, sees this, he begins to smack talk, right? He calls them out. Hey, maybe you're not singing loud enough. Maybe you're not cutting deeply enough. Maybe your God's not listening. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's gone fishing. Perhaps he's in the bathroom. I, you know, maybe he's busy doing something and he's just not listening to you. I think you need to cut deeper. I think you need more wounds. I think you need to shout louder. I think you need to dance harder, right? And Elijah is smack talking against them because in his day, as in the day of Zechariah, when there was false worship, there was self-mutilation. So Zechariah is describing that when Messiah comes on that day, when he banishes all idols and all false prophets, that even those who make false prophecies, they'll be so ashamed of what they say that when somebody presses them and say, hey, what about that wound that's on your wrist? They'll say, oh, no, 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 no. That happened when I was a boy. I was playing at a friend's house, right? And, you know, we, we were just playing with knives because that's what boys do, right? So we were just playing with knives, and I just kind of cut myself, and I did it. It was at a friend's house a long time, but I am not a false prophet. Because in that day, there'll be such a hunger for God's truth that anything false will be revealed. And when that false prophet is revealed, he'll be slain. He'll be stabbed. Now, I think what Zechariah is doing is he's comparing for us how bad false prophecy is, how evil idolatry is, and you see it in comparison to the beauty of the true shepherd. It's in verse 7. The Lord speaks, and it's the Lord who says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The man who is close to me. Now I realize that's a difficult verse to try to unpack and try to decipher. But John MacArthur is, is helpful 
in the parsing of the words and the description of the phrases. When you read the word, awake, O sword, a sword was emblematic of death. What God is saying is that he will be the one responsible for the death of my true shepherd. My true shepherd will stand over against all the false shepherds. My true shepherd will come. And my true shepherd will be put to death. And God says, I'll be the one responsible. I will awake my sword against my shepherd. We say that Jesus is my shepherd. But here in this passage, from God's perspective, Jesus is God's shepherd. So he says that this Messiah, when he comes, I will put my shepherd to death. The next phrase modifies the word shepherd. Who is this? that the Lord is talking about. The man who is close to me, declares the Lord. Now the word man in the Hebrew text is a mighty man, no ordinary man, an extraordinary man. A man unlike any other. This man unlike any other, God says, is close to me. That phrase close to me can more literally be rendered of my union. This shepherd, who is the true shepherd, he is a mighty man, unlike any other man. He's not an ordinary man. He's a spectacular man. And he is a spectacular, unordinary man who is of the union of God. That phrase, of my union, could also be rendered my co-equal. So here the Lord is saying that I will smite my shepherd. And my shepherd is no ordinary man. My shepherd is an extraordinary man. My shepherd is of my union. My shepherd is co-equal with me. Now, friends, I realize that Zechariah writes some 500 years before the coming of Christ. But can he be talking about anybody other than Jesus? I mean, it seems like he gives us every detail except for the one detail that his name shall be Jesus, right? I mean, it seems like in his description of Messiah, it looks an awful lot like our Messiah. It looks an awful lot like Jesus himself, that the shepherd will be slain, and he'll be slain by God Almighty. You know, sometimes we ask the question, who killed Jesus? And we say the Roman soldiers killed Jesus or the Jews killed Jesus or my sin killed Jesus. But according to the Bible, more times than not, it is God who killed Jesus. Why would God slay his son? Why would God slit the shepherd who is of his same union? Why why would he sacrifice The one who is co-eternal, co-equal God. Why would he wrap this God in flesh and send him as no ordinary man to die? Why would God slaughter his shepherd? The answer, for the sake of his sheep. God loves you, you woolly creature, you stinky Sheep, I mean, God loves you. He loves me that much that he sent the shepherd, the true shepherd, to die for us. And the death of the shepherd is sufficient to open the fountain 
of blood to cleanse us from all sin and all iniquity. It is my father of the ministry, Robert Smith Jr., who says the Bible is not so much about the man of salvation as it is about the plan. I mean, it's not so much about the plan of salvation as it is about the man of salvation. That this Bible tells us about the extraordinary man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that salvation is not found in a plan, but salvation is found in a man. Because from God's perspective, before Genesis 1-1 ever took place, God had already written Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, you find Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where John sees the lamb who was slain before the very foundation of the world. The only plan that God has to sufficiently save you from sin is for the shepherd, his shepherd, the true shepherd, to come as no ordinary man, to be co-equal God, to be slain on your behalf, and by his slaughter, he will open up a new fountain, which will be uh, the shedding of pure, precious blood to cover over your sins continually forever and ever and ever. The gospel is right here in Zechariah chapter 13. Because here in this passage, In Jesus, our Messiah, there is true cleansing. In Jesus, our Messiah, there is a true shepherd. Third and finally, in Jesus, our Messiah, there is true worship. The only appropriate response, if you know that there is cleansing through the shepherd, is to worship God, right? That's the only appropriate response. Yet we know that not everybody believes upon Jesus, right? In fact, not even the majority of people believe upon Jesus. You read in the passage, verses 8 and 9, and it says that two-thirds of the people will perish. Only one-third will be the holy remnant. Only one-third, one out of three people, will survive, and they'll survive as if they're being refined through the fire. Now, what is God talking about? Well, There has always been a holy remnant of God, always will be. God will never be left without a witness. And we know that at any point of history, the majority of people do not trust in Jesus. So what Zechariah could be talking about is just overarching history. Two-thirds of people perish. One-third enter into eternal life. Or he could be talking about the days of the tribulation. That when those intense days of suffering come, two-thirds will perish, only one-third will enter eternal life. Or he could be even specifically talking about that great last battle, the battle of Armageddon, when Jesus comes back victorious and he assembles all the nations and with his mighty voice, with only a word, he destroys them. And maybe two-thirds of them will perish and only a third of people will enter into eternal life. Regardless, we know that the majority of people do not believe in our God. But God says, there's always some. Praise the Lord. There's always some. There's always a few people that trust in Christ wholeheartedly. And God says of them, I will call them my people. And they will say of me, the Lord is our God. Did did you see the order there? God calls first. And we call in response. It is God who calls first. And God says, you are my people. And in response to that, we worship the Lord in true splendor. And we say, the Lord is our God. Look, we live our life. We speak our lips 
to declare the Lord is our God. We come here each and every Sunday, and why do we gather and worship? We gather to declare the Lord is our God. We need a weekly reminder that the Lord is our God. We need to be with God's people on God's day. We need to declare the Lord is our God. We want you to be here, not just to stuff the house, not just to pack a pew. We want you here because you need to know, and I need to know, the Lord is our God. We gather for worship because we live in a culture that's becoming extremely hostile towards Christianity. We come in here to declare the Lord is our God and by doing so, we reclaim some of our sanity. I mean, you help me to stay sane because I live in a culture that has lost its ever-loving mind. We stand in front of a watching world to declare the Lord is our God. We stand with believing Israel. We stand with believing Gentiles and we declare in unison as as one person, the Lord is our God. We need to be reminded of this in worship. We need to be reminded of this. We need to declare it with our lips and our lives, in our walk, in our talk. We need to simply say, the Lord is our God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Believing Jew, even the nations. The nations can rejoice, Zechariah says in chapter two. The nations can rejoice because they'll be joined with the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. At the name of Jesus, Every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Almighty. Listen, friend, a day is coming when we will bow before Christ, we'll acknowledge with our lips that Jesus is Lord. We will either bow out of conviction or compulsion. We'll either bow out of surrender or holy gravity will take over and knees will buckle and lips will be loosed and people will say, yep, he's right, he is Lord. Because there is a fountain, and it's filled with blood, and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, and they lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. Friends, we come to Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 to 9, and we have to conclude Lord, thank you for your grace that we live between the advents. We look back at the first coming. We look to the future for the second coming. We look back and we see that the true shepherd, the one who's no ordinary man, the one who is co-equal and co-eternal God, stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He was born in a Bethlehem barn. He lived a perfect life. He never did anything wrong in word or deed. He had a three-year public ministry. At the end of that, he was handed over to the religious rulers, and they crucified him. And one faithful Friday, the Lamb of God was slit, slain, and slaughtered. And his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. They took his dead body off the cross. They placed him into a borrowed grave. They rolled a massive stone in front of it. He stayed there for Friday, all day Saturday, even into early Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, every gospel writer tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead by the 
by the, by the power of God the Father, he raised God the Son through God the Spirit. And though he was dead, he was made alive again because Jesus endured our hell at Calvary so we may enjoy his heaven for all of eternity. Jesus burst forth from the tomb. He ascended to the heavens and he's seated because his work is done. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's making intercession for you right now. Literally, Jesus is praying for us right now in this very moment. But there's coming a day when that day will be completed. There's coming a great and dreadful day of the Lord. There's coming a day when God the Father will give a wink and a nod to God the Son and Jesus will stand up. He'll mount his white horse. He'll split the eastern sky. He will descend. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And as soon as Jesus, the creator of all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, as soon as his holy foot touches the soil of the Mount of Olives, the earth will quake. There'll be an earthquake that breaks that mountain from the east to the west. And God himself, Jesus, our Lord, he will assemble all the nations as they gather to fight against Israel. And by his word, he will defeat them. And by his word, he will destroy them. And by his word, he'll establish his kingdom. And we, the Holy the entourage will come with Jesus, will rule and reign forever and ever, and we will be with him. He will be our God, and we will declare the Lord is our God. And the Lord will say unto you and to me, you are my people. And because you are my people, we can say to him, the Lord is our God. Listen, friend, everything in life is, is boiled down to what did you do with Jesus? Either you receive him or you reject him, but you cannot ignore him. If you receive him, you have nothing to fear. If you reject him, you have everything to dread because Jesus came. He is the one who is the king. He is the one with the only name. He is the only king of the world. He will come and establish his kingdom. And we as his people, we will declare the Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. So this morning, the invitation is simple. If you find yourself outside of Christ, today's salvation by his grace is offered to you and you can surrender unto King Jesus and you can say unto him, I give you everything. I am banking all of my hope in Christ and Christ alone. And the person who trusts Jesus fully is a person who is saved fully by Jesus. If you're here today and you've never proclaimed your surrender unto Christ, then today is the day. As soon as we start singing, you just come forward, take a minister by the hand and say, hey, I need to surrender to that Jesus. I know I'm a sinner and I know that my sins were upon the shoulders of Jesus. And he died for me. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. So if you're outside of Christ, today by God's grace, you have an opportunity to be in Christ. But friends, if you are in Christ, if God says to you, you are my people and you've responded, the Lord is my God, then today before you leave, just say thank you to God. You know, not everybody can declare the Lord is my God. And if you can say that and really mean it, if you can say that and really know it, 
If you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord is your God, friend, you are the most blessed of people on planet Earth. Not everybody can say that. Not everybody knows the Lord like you do. Not everybody follows him as hard as you do. Not everybody trusts him to the depth that you do. And if you know him and trust him and follow him, then today, before you leave this holy sanctuary, just stop and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you counted me as your people so that I can count you as my God. Maybe you need to come this morning and pray. It's a prayer that perhaps may be a confession of sin, but maybe it's just a prayer of praise where you just come and say, God, thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, our Messiah, there is true cleansing. In Jesus, our Messiah, there is a true shepherd. In Jesus, our Messiah, there is true worship. Because if you know Jesus, our Messiah, you declare with your life, you declare with your words, the Lord is our God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. We pray that you will move and will respond in obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.